Our scripture reading this morning is from Job chapter 20. Uh, Job 20, this is the second and final speech of Zophar the Namathite. I remember a, a few weeks ago we looked at Job 18 and uh, Bildad's sing, uh, sermon on the uh, singular sinner in the hands of an angry and a graceless God. Now Zophar preaches essentially the same message as Job's friends have really but one song to sing. And this one is in response to Job's confession of faith in chapter 19, where he said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he will stand at last upon the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I will see God. Job has confessed hope in the resurrection of the body. Job has confessed hope in his Redeemer. The the mediator is both God and man who will come to save him. And Zophar is angered by that confession. He is angered by the warning of judgment in verses 28 and 29 of Job 19 for those who will not make that confession. And so having no ears to hear the gospel of the resurrection of the body, the gospel of the divine yet human redeemer who will come, Zophar responds in chapter 20. It says, Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Therefore my anxious thoughts make me answer because of the turmoil within me. I have heard the rebuke that reproaches me And the spirit of my understanding causes me to answer. Do you not know this of old, since man was placed on earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment? Though his haughtiness mounts up to the heavens, and his head reaches to the clouds, yet he will perish forever like his own refuse. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. Yes, he will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place behold him anymore. His children will seek the favor of the poor, and his hands will restore his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. Though evil is sweet in his mouth and he hides it under his tongue, though he spares it and does not forsake it, but still keeps it in his mouth, yet his food in his stomach turns sour, it becomes cobra venom within him. He swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. He will suck the poison of cobras. The viper's tongue will slay him. He will not see the streams, the rivers flowing with honey and cream. He will restore that for which he labored and will not swallow it down. From the proceeds of business, he will get no enjoyment. For he has oppressed and forsaken the poor. He has violently seized the house which he did not build. Because he knows no quietness in his heart, he will not save anything he desires. Nothing is left for him to eat, therefore his well-being will not last. In his self-sufficiency, he will be in distress. Every hand of misery will come against him. 
When he's about to fill his stomach, God will cast on him the fury of his wrath and will rain it on him while he is eating. He will flee from the iron weapon. A, a bronze bow will pierce him through. It is drawn and comes out of the body. Yes, the glittering point comes out of his gall. Terrors come upon him. Total darkness is reserved for his treasures. An unfanned fire will consume him. It shall go with him who is left, or it shall go ill with him who is left in his tent. The heavens will reveal his iniquity, and the earth will rise up against him. The increase of his house will depart, and his goods will flow away in the day of his wrath. This is the portion from God for a wicked man, the heritage appointed to him by God. Beloved, those uh, closing words well summarize Zophar's speech about the wicked man. The heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. His goods will be carried away like a flood in the day of God's wrath. That day of wrath is judgment day. This sermon is another sermon about hell. And like Bildad's in chapter 18, it uh, contains things that are true, but also things that are blatantly false. So what I want to do this morning is uh, divide this sermon into four parts. First, a sort of overview of Zophar's argument. Then we'll look at what he gets right, what he gets wrong, and finally, how all of this relates to Christ. And so first, an overview of Zophar's speech. Can we have that uh, summary at the end? But before that is uh, Zophar's angry introduction in verses 2 and 3, where he says, in response to Job, my anxious thoughts make me answer. In other words, Job, I'm very troubled by what you just said in, in chapter 19. I, I can't believe you would have the audacity to say that God would come in the flesh to redeem you, and especially that you would dare say there is a judgment coming for those who don't believe that. And so my angry, anxious thoughts prompt me to give an answer and correct you. I have heard the the reproachful rebuke of your warning at the end of chapter 29, and the spirit of my understanding causes me to answer. He says that the spirit of his understanding, he'll, he'll go on to, to explain that it's an understanding that is informed by the traditions of verse 4, which say that the triumph of the wicked is short and the joy of the hypocrite is for but a moment. You could say that's Zophar's theme statement in this speech. The triumph of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite is for but a moment. And it's, it's drawn from the age-old tradition, the, the same one that Eliphaz has referred to in chapter 15, or Bildad in chapter 8. The age-old tradition which says there is a direct ratio between sin and suffering. The righteous will prosper, the wicked will suffer, and any apparent joy and ease for the wicked will be sorted out very quickly as judgment comes immediately. 
He says in verse 6 of of this unnamed wicked man who is the subject of the sermon that though his pride reaches up to heaven like the builders of the Tower of Babel or or like the satanic prince of Tyre in Ezekiel 28, though he he, uh, sets himself up and tries to reach for heaven in his pride, he says he will perish forever like his own refuse or like his own dung. He will fly away like a dream. And be forgotten. In verses 7 to 9, he, he says, those who see him will see him no more because he will vanish away and his place will not behold him anymore. And the language that Zophar is using here is echoing Job's lament from chapter 7 where he says the, the same thing in verses 7 to 10. And so what Zophar is doing is, is he's taking the words of Job's heart-wrenching lament from chapter 7 and he's turning them into a judicial sentence as if they prove that he's wicked. Uh, the way that, that, that Zophar is picking up on Job's earlier language, and this isn't the only place he does it, but the way that he picks up on his earlier language and, and his, his current experiences tells us that the wicked man of Job 20 is Job whose children, Zophar goes on to say in verse 10, will beg from the poor. Which again is a rather insensitive thing to say since Job's children have just died. But nevertheless, that's what Bildad says. He, he speaks of restoring his wealth, which may actually be an accusation that Job's wealth has been built on oppressing the poor. Is what Zophar will say in verse 19. And so these children would be forced to either pay back the poor what their father stole from them or to beg them for mercy. You see, this this great reversal of fortunes where though Job was once at the very height of riches and glory, as we read of back in chapter 1, his children would be forced to beg. That though his body was once full of youthful vigor and strength, as Zophar says in verse 11, it will lie down in the dust. This is the picture that that Zophar is painting in response to Job's confession of faith in a redeemer. And it's a picture that is built on the wisdom of the tradition that's been passed down to them from the fathers. It goes on in verses 12 to 19 become an even, an even stronger accusation where Zophar here lays out his charges saying that Job has indulged in forbidden fruit. Uh, saying that Job has tasted that which was sweet in his mouth, but is actually poison and leads to death. Verse 14, the food in his mouth becomes sour. It becomes cobra venom within him. The riches that he swallowed down in his unjust dealings with those he oppressed, says he will vomit them up again as God casts them out of his belly, making him suffer for taking that which did not belong to him. So far goes on in verses 16 to 19 to describe the, the wages of sin. That instead of seeing the land flowing with milk and honey, verse 17, Job will suck the poison of cobras and the viper's tongue will slay him. Instead of the covenant blessings that were promised to God's people being brought into the land flowing with milk and honey, covenant curses will come upon him. The serpent will slay him. Instead of enjoying the proceeds of his business and that for which he labored, verse 18, he will have to restore it and get no enjoyment of it. 
Again, these, these are covenantal curses where God's people were told that they would not be able to enjoy the things that they had built, but another nation would come in and take it. And the reason for all of this, the, the, the main charge that Zophar lays against Job says he has oppressed and forsaken the poor and he has violently seized a house that he did not build. These are Zophar's charges against Job, which Job in chapter 29 and chapter 31 will vigorously contest, as does God in his statement in chapter 1 and chapter 2. But Zophar has to make something up because his system demands it. That the only way to explain Job's suffering is his sin. Next, he goes on to describe how Job is greedy. Or the New King James says he has no quietness in his heart. I think that the ESV captures that well. He has, or he knew, no contentment in his belly and would not let anything in which he delights escape him. He's like the billionaire who was asked, how much money is enough? And he answered, just a little bit more than I have now. Zophar is accusing Job of greed, of so idolizing money that he oppresses the poor. In verse 22, the hand of misery then comes upon him. And God will cast on him the fury of his wrath and rain that fury upon him as, as Job tries to run, but God pierces him through and gall comes out of him. Terrors come upon him. An unfanned fire consumes him. His treasures go into darkness. The increase of his house departs. His goods will be carried away by the flood of God's judgment as the heavens reveal his iniquity and earth rises up against him on the day of God's wrath. Judgment day. Zophar is speaking of hell, the heritage appointed for the wicked man by God. And just like Bildad, the wicked man that Zophar refers to is Job. And so instead of having a divine yet human redeemer who will stand in his place and take up his cause, as he said back in chapter 19, Zophar is saying, no, this this heavenly yet earthly redeemer will not come and stand in your place, but heaven and earth will testify against you. The exact opposite of what you've said will take place. And the wrath of God will be poured out on you to no end. As Bildad said also, this is the fate of him who knows not God. That's a summary, an overview of Zophar's speech in Job 20. And obviously there are problems with this speech. We want to get into those in a bit. Before we get there, I think it's okay to ask whether there's anything Zophar gets right in here. I'm going to point out five um, theological or ethical assertions Zophar makes that we can add our amen to, is not everything Zophar says here is wrong. First, like Bildad, chapter 18, Zophar makes the point that hell is real that there really is a place where the unfanned fire will consume with no end. And as much as as the modern mind might like to dismiss this, this is the Bible's teaching. It's it's the clear teaching of Christ in the Gospels, and it's a teaching that with Zophar we must affirm. 
Verse 26, that hell is real, that the unfanned fire will consume with no end. And along with that, he affirms a second that judgment is coming. Not only is hell a real place, but God is a real judge who will rain down his fury, verse 23 and verse 24, so that none can escape on the day, verse 28, of his wrath. Hell is real. Judgment is coming. And third, the wicked will eventually perish. Notice this whole ode to judgment concerns the wicked who were referred to in verse 5 and referred to again in verse 29 and will perish, their triumph being cut short. This is the portion from God for a wicked man. Hell is real. Judgment is coming. The wicked will eventually perish. And then fourth, um, Zophar teaches us in verses 12 to 19 that though sin tastes sweet initially, it has a bitter aftertaste. That sin never makes good on its promises, but though it makes you think it's going to be sweet in your mouth and sweet under your tongue, verse 12, it will eventually become sour and make you sick. Zophar is not wrong. And every one of us has experienced this. As Satan whispers in your ear that those words of gossip or that sexual sin or that angry outburst at your spouse or your child or, or cheating on your neighbor at school, that, that those things will somehow satisfy you, but each and every time that sin fails to make good on its promises. It may taste sweet for a moment, but it has a bitter aftertaste. Eventually, you feel guilty and you feel shame, and you feel sick to your stomach like David in Psalm 32. Your body aches. You feel physically unwell because sin disagrees with the human constitution like bad food disagrees with the stomach. So far is right. He's also right in what he says in verse 19 about oppressing the poor. That's the, the fifth thing that he gets right, that to oppress and forsake the poor is wicked. To build your house on the backs of those you take advantage of, to mistreat your employees, to take advantage of the migrant and the foreigner, the widow and the orphan, these things are are wrong. These are things that throughout the law and throughout the prophets and throughout the Psalms anger the Lord. That as Christ comes in the Gospels, anger the Lord. Zophar is not wrong. We'll see in chapter 31, a big part of Job's defense of his righteousness is saying that he's not done these things, but has in fact done the opposite. And in so doing, has modeled for us the pure and undefiled religion of James 1.27, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. These are things that Zophar gets right. But of course, it's possible to uh, say right things, and yet in the entirety of your argument, to very much miss the mark. That's what we have again in Job 20, a speech that contains many elements of truth, but ends up being truth misapplied. Joseph Carroll, the old uh, Puritan who uh, famously wrote some 8,000 pages on Job, preached about 420 sermons on it, he, he said of the friends... 
that their counsels in the doctrine of them were oftentimes good and savory, providing wholesome food. But as to Job's case, they were quite mistaken in their use. And so instead of easing his pain, they troubled him. Carol said, a physician may give a sick patient that which is good in itself, and yet it may kill him instead of cure him if it be not proper for his disease. That which is good counsel to a man at one time may be ill to him at another. Yes, not only words untrue, but words misapplied are unsavory and may be dangerous. They are not food, but may be poison. And so as you think about what Zophar gets wrong, the first thing that he gets wrong is his treatment of Job's case. He's like a physician. That's what Job called him back in Job 13.4. He's like a physician who, who treats all of his patients with the same medicine. And though it may be good for one man, by failing to differentiate between his patients, he hurts the other. There are times when the words of the friends throughout this book may be necessary for a straying brother or sister. There are times when the warnings of judgment that they issue may be needed. But there are other times when those warnings are not only irrelevant, but may be harmful. That would be like a pastor going to the bedside of a dying saint and only reading the first part of Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death but never getting to the second part, but the gift of God is eternal life. And by striking fear and doubt into the heart of that dying saint, that pastor, though using the words of God, would become the mouthpiece of Satan. That's what Zophar has become. So Carol says we need to make sure that we are managing the word of God. We need to make sure to make a difference of our patients by our different medicines and not serve all out of the same box. It's a word needed warning for elders. It's a needed warning for parents. Not every child is the same. Not every member of Christ's flock is the same. And some of us have one hobby horse that we think is the be-all, end-all of every problem, and by failing to differentiate between the people to whom we speak, we do more harm than good with our one-size-fits-all solution. Zophar was not speaking to a wicked man. He was speaking to the most righteous man in all the East. And so his counsel should not have been what it was. That's the first problem with Zophar's speech, his treatment of Job's case. A second problem with Zophar's speech is his trumped-up charges, his narrow system that interprets every situation through the paradigm of sin and guilt has led him to actually fabricate uh, charges against Job in verse 19 that have no grounds whatsoever. As chapter 31 will make clear, or, or as God's statement in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 42 makes clear, that these charges are false. But Zophar's commitment to his system has led him to lie. His anger in in verse 2 and verse 3 has led him to slander, has led him to view this man who God says is the most righteous man in all the East, has led him to call him a hypocrite and proud. 
Say in his haughtiness, he sought to be like the prince of Tyre or like Adam in the Garden of Eden or, or like the builders of the Tower of Babel and, and climb his way up to heaven presumptuously and in his pride. Zophar's system has led him to slander, to trumped up charges. It's interesting, his, his slander throughout the passage over and over uh, refers to Job's wealth. Verse 10, about restoring the wealth that he's taken from the poor. Again, in verse 18 and and verse 19, the the judgment. Verse 26 and verse 28, again, deals with Job's wealth, his treasures. Derek Thomas makes the suggestion that Zophar may be guilty of envy. He seems obsessed with Job's wealth. Thomas says it wouldn't be the first case of a Christian who castigates his listener for something that lies more appropriately at the door of his own heart. We're engaged in judgmental counseling of this sort. We need to make sure that our motives are pure. Thomas says one cannot help but suspect that Zophar's were not. When you counsel your friend about their materialism, You need to make sure that it's not because you just wish that you had what they do. When you censure another for pride, make sure that you're not just jealous of their success and projecting your own sin onto their heart. That may be the case. That explains in part Zophar's trumped-up charges. That's actually what the Gospels say about the Pharisees in relation to Jesus, that it was out of envy that they delivered him up, that the false charges they made against him were because they were jealous of him. So that's the the second problem with Zophar's speech, those uh, trumped-up charges. The third problem, and this he has in common with Bildad and Eliphaz, is the traditionalism that we see in verse 4. That much of this is because he has placed all of his theological eggs in one basket and that of the traditions from of old. Zophar says, do you not know this of old? The teachings that have been understood to be true since man was placed on the earth. Do you not know the traditions? He's basing his counsel not on divine revelation but on man-made traditions. And this is something that we can be very much in danger of doing too. We do it when we judge another church inferior to ours because their traditions differ. Judging another family less Christian than ours because their traditions differ on things the word of God does not directly address, but we elevate our tradition to the level of divine revelation. That's what Bildad and Zophar and Eliphaz have been doing all throughout this book. It's the same thing that Christ will rebuke the Pharisees for in Matthew 15 and Matthew 16, or Paul will call um, call out in 1 Timothy 4 as doctrines of demons. Zophar's counsel is not based on divine revelation, but human tradition. So what's wrong with Zophar's counsel? His treatment of Job's case fails to differentiate between patients. His trumped-up charges are not true, but are based more out of envy than reality. And his inherited tradition is the standard by which he evaluates all else. And one last T, last problem we see with Zophar is in his tone. His treatment of Job's case, his trumped-up charges, traditionalism, and his tone. 
uh, this sermon in Job 20, like that in chapter 18, is a sermon preached to a singular audience about hell that is preached without compassion. In fact, it's preached in anger. Notice again his opening words. He says, my anxious thoughts make me answer because of the turmoil or, or boiling blood within me. I have heard your subtle rebuke in 19 verse 29. So I'm going to give a not so subtle rebuke where I preach you into hell. Zophar is easily offended. Zophar is lacking compassion. Zophar offers no possibility of repentance, no hope in the mercy of God, whereas there was something of that in in chapter 11. It's missing altogether in chapter 20 because he hates Job. He sees him as a lost cause. Zophar is the kind of preacher every seminarian should strive not to be. His tone lacks compassion. His God lacks mercy. His eyes lack tears. The joy of the Lord is not heard in his voice. Remember Sinclair Ferguson once saying that there is a tendency for Christians to associate the character of God with with the character of the preaching that they hear. And this not only in the substance and content of it, but in the spirit and atmosphere that it conveys. So Ferguson says, what if there is a distortion in the understanding and heart of the preacher that subtly distorts his exposition of God's character? What if his narrow heart pollutes the atmosphere in which he explains the heart of the Father? When people are broken by sin and full of shame and feeling weak, conscious of failure, ashamed of themselves and in need of counsel, they don't need to listen to preaching that expounds the truth of the doctrines of the church's confessions, but fails to connect them with the marrow of gospel grace and the father of infinite love for sinners. It is a gracious and loving father they need to know. As I was tracking down that that quote from Ferguson, I noticed he goes on to say in the next paragraph, such, alas, were precisely the kinds of pastors who gathered around poor Job and assaulted him with their doctrine that God was against him. From the mouths of these men issue some of the most sublime, discreet theological statements anywhere to be found in the Bible, but they disconnected them from God's life-giving love for his needy and broken child. And so they exchange the truth about God for a lie. This will not do in gospel ministry. Rather, pastors need to have been so mastered by the unconditional grace of God that they might handle bruised reeds without breaking them and dimly burning wicks without quenching them. The tone with which one preaches matters. We're not talking about cadence or, or voice or volume talking about the smile of God coming through in one's voice, which is totally absent here in Zophar. This applies not just to preaching, but to to personal counsel or to parenting or to the way that, that friends come alongside those who are hurting. Do they sense the smile of God in you or his frown? Do they sense a pointed finger or outstretched arms? Sadly, the spirit of Zophar is alive and well in many churches, in many pulpits, in many homes, in many blogs, many Facebook feeds. But the gospel of Jesus Christ shows us a better way. To our last point, I want to try to connect all of this 
to Christ that Jesus says in, in John 5 and in Luke 24 that all of the scriptures point to him. Now, Jesus commissions gospel ministers to minister the gospel, and so even a Christless passage like this must take us to Christ. I'm going to point out two ways that Zophar's speech lead us, uh, leads us to Jesus. First, I think I've said this before, but But as we see in uh, Zophar and Eliphaz and Bildad, these examples of of how not to comfort the downcast, as we see in them these examples of how not to preach hell or how not to be a friend to those in need, as as we see this chapter after chapter after chapter, we are seeing a, a shadowy image emerge of the exact opposite of these three friends, Christ, who is called the friend of sinners. Who, in fact, in, in Job 16, um, Job says that even though his friends scorn him, Christ, Job's witness in heaven, will argue his case as a son of man pleads for his friend. I think the New King James translates that neighbor, other translations, friend. Job, just a few chapters before this, is making the very point that what these friends are not, Christ will be. He will be the friend who will plead his cause for him. Christ will become the friend that Zophar fails to be, who does not hold Job at an arm's length, who does not falsely accuse him. In fact, he will be accused for him. As he loves Job so much that he will stand in his place as his redeemer, Job 19, and be berated with false accusations for him. He will become the one in whom Zophar's sermon about hell finds its fulfillment. Which is the second way that this chapter relates to Christ. He will enter into the darkness of Job 20 for him and for us. His life, verse 5, being cut short as he died in his prime at just 33 years. His body, verse 11, being laid down in the dust of the grave. His reputation, verse 19, being tarnished as he was falsely accused and condemned on trumped-up charges, Matthew 26. Christ will replay Job's experience, enduring the worst of what Zophar here says, being pierced through, verse 24 and verse 25, as terrors come upon him on the day of wrath is appointed by God, verse 29, the day of darkness, verse 26, that is Good Friday. Christ becomes the wicked man of Job 20, becoming sin for us. So Christopher Ashe says the value of Job 20 is not just in teaching us not to be like Zophar where our Pharisaism causes grace to be leached out of our conversation as we lapse into religious certainties of grace-free religion, but it also teaches us what a dreadful thing it is to fall under the wrath of God and so helps us to grasp the depths of darkness and suffering that Christ experienced On the cross. So the same thing in Job 18. As these friends continue to to preach him into hell and to proclaim the judgment of God against this this, uh, faithful, innocent servant, we are seeing the shadow of Jesus Christ. The one who will endure all that and worse. You see the shadow of Christ in Job 20. The better friend than Zophar the innocent sufferer 
like Job, the object of God's wrath, whose substitutionary suffering allows even those of whom verses 12 to 19 may be true, even they are allowed by grace to be freed from God's wrath by faith and repentance. So that even if you're here this morning and, and, and are one of those who do need to hear Zophar's warning about the reality of hell and the judgment that's coming, that even if that's true of you, if you come to Christ who bore that judgment for you, then you will never have to know the depths of hell this chapter warns of. Or if you're here this morning and you're a Zophar, a graceless Pharisee with no compassion, whose only knowledge of the Savior is through your acquaintance with the traditions of the fathers, even if that's you, the promise of the gospel is that if you repent of your Zophar-like hypocrisy, the grace of God is also for you, that it's even big enough to change the hearts of men like Zophar, which is precisely what we see as we come to the end of the book. We're in chapter 42. Job's intercession, which foreshadows that of Christ, even causes a man like Zophar to be forgiven and to be made right with God and right with his friend and to have a heart that is so changed that he truly comforts Job in Job 42.11. You see how the gospel of Christ is sufficient both for tax collectors and harlots like the wicked man described in Job 20 or for Pharisees like the one who is speaking in Job 20. And so whichever end of the spectrum you find yourself on, Christ says to you this morning, come. My grace is sufficient. I have bled for your sin. I have taken God's wrath upon myself and I will make you new. By my spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ, whose suffering is typified in the suffering of Job and whose gracious tone and demeanor is um, all the more amplified by the friends who fail where Christ succeeds. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to be friends like Zophar, that our pulpits would not have Zophars in them, that our hearts would be freed of the spirit of Zophar. As we look to Christ, who bore the hell of Job 20 for us, that our hearts would be conformed to the likeness of, of his gracious character, of your gracious character. And sinners would be drawn to you through us as the gospel more and more shapes us as a people. We pray in Jesus.